I'm Ethan Majok, and welcome to The Point. This week, our lead story comes from reporter Luke Sullivan, who explores what a letter sent during a war can tell us about those who fight it. In 1968, Jack Barrett was a combat medic in Khe Sanh, Vietnam, in a battle that would last nearly six months and claim the lives of over 9,000. We had a base there in 66, maybe a little earlier. It was up towards the DMZ on the Laotian North Vietnamese border. It was kind of tucked in. It had an airstrip. Marines were basically there. So DMZ? Yeah, demilitarized zone. Like, Korea still has that. It separates the two. And, um... Kaesan, at one point in the Tet Offensive, you've probably heard of that, in 68, became under siege, and there was like 53 or 5,400 Marines and a few Army Green Berets and some other people there. Uh, we were surrounded. They don't know. They told us a couple hundred thousand. We don't know. The Marines always said, bring it on. There'll be a lot of dead gooks. <laughs> That's the way the Marines are. And there probably would have been. We had a lot of air support, and we had a lot of stuff going for us. But for 67 days, we were under siege, and we took maybe a good day with six or 700 incoming rounds, rockets, mortar, artillery firing, and a bad day, 14 or 1,500 rounds, which is a lot in a little base, probably not quite a mile square. They zeroed in on us, so uh, you lived a lot underground. We couldn't get a lot of supplies in at times, and it was pretty rough. Uh, the clothes you wore in were pretty much what you wore. They rotted off of us at the end of 60-some days, pretty much. Probably didn't smell too good, but most of us tried to bath in our helmet, at least wash our face every day. <laughs> we didn't shave a lot or anything like that, but uh, a lot of stuff happened. A lot of guys got hurt, and a lot of guys got killed, of course. And uh, every time you'd have incoming, you generally have casualties somewhere. Barrett wrote to his mother often, more so than most soldiers. He was sweet in his letters, and reassured her her son was still okay. I would write home pretty frequently, and uh, and I would never write too much stuff. You know, I, you know I, but they're seeing everything on TV, and they're hearing about this battle of Kaysan and how bad it is, and every night it's all over TV. And after coming home later and watching some of the news broadcasts that were taped, I could see why they, they pretty much knew what was going on, at least what the government told them. And they didn't hold a lot back. And my mom sent me, I got a letter from her one day and she said, she was upset. She said, you're not telling us what's going on. She said, I know you're in, I don't know what she said. But she said, but uh, you're not telling us. We need to know. We want to know. So I started telling them stuff. Not every little gory detail, but I started telling them stuff. And then they were happy. And so I wrote home, and, and right after that's when I wrote and told my mom about the chaplain and what happened to him and all that. So. <laughs> Almost 50 years later, he read for me part of that honest letter about the chaplain he sent his mom. Well, Mom, you sounded a little angry with me in this letter. I am writing you. I would not write you. It just just the mail situation. As far as what I say, I guess after a while when you get hit every day, and get used to it and talk a lot of it as, as an everyday occurrence. I could say today we had some close ones. I saw a kid die, but any more of it is almost an everyday occurrence, so you just only want to forget what you see as soon as you can and never remember it. Can you understand that if you have never gone through this, I guess it might be hard to understand. 
Now they don't tell us a thing about what to write, I wouldn't care anyway. Well, I just have the job of keeping an account of all our casualties and often identifying the dead. That is a bad job, but someone's got to do it. Well, Mom, I pride myself in the fact that when I come home, I'll be the same old me, maybe a little more midriff bulge. I've been through a lot, but it hasn't affected me much, of course. There are days I don't mentally feel my best, but that happens at home also. I'm me, and I'll never change. I've got too much of a, at home for me to come to, to let the change me any. Well, the chaplain was in a trench, and around hit him direct. He was barely recognizable. I knew from, knew him well and recognized his arm features in his hands, and he had no head. So that is, I really couldn't see telling you the bad details all if it makes you feel bad. We identified him by his eye teeth. War is hell. It's the oldest cliche in the book. But after talking to those who went through it, it seems to me it's not completely true. There's hell in war. That's a little closer. Men and women find little escapes, respites along the way. One of those is in the relationships they hold dear. For Jack, writing home was a kind of therapy for him when his war became hell. Well, I, like I said, I was pretty selective as to what I said for a while, and then later on I started pouring my feelings in them because it was a release, because that does affect you, you know. Uh, when you have a, had a really good friend who, who got the bottom part of his body blown away, he lived for a little, we kept him alive for a little bit, he died. But uh, I wrote home, I, I, it's somewhere in letters I mentioned it, but I, I didn't get into the, the goriness of it per se, but um, you get desensitized to that after a while, to the... To what's going on around you, you really—I I think you do. And I mean, beings that I was a medic and had to deal with it, you know, go to people. You just had to do it. I mean, it was, you, you didn't think about it; you just did it. And um, quite a few times, I know I helped keep somebody going until they could get more help. Uh, there were times when it didn't work, and I have uh, held a guy's hands till he died and sit with him so he wasn't alone. But, uh, um, so writing home is a, was another world. It got you out of it. So I, I liked it, I needed to do it. And I guess that's why I found the time to do it whenever I could. And I wasn't the only one, a lot of guys, a lot of guys did that. While writing was helpful, reading had its benefits too. A soldier could find a scrap of peace in the mail coming from home. I got a lot of mail, too. There was times that I would get... Mail would be very sporadic. My mother started numbering the letters, and sometimes I'd get number 155, and then a week later I'd get number 117, you know. And uh, it, sometimes you wouldn't get any mail for a week or two, and then all of a sudden you'd get 10 or 12, and it was really hard to try. And, and I'd sit and read them and try and answer, you know, you know how you do. And... Uh, it was a connection to home, and I was very well supported. But I can remember guys that never got mail. So a lot of times, if I got a bunch of letters, I'd just give guys two or three and say, here, read mine. And uh, I think it helped them, you know. They'd read them, and then they'd come and say what they said. Well, I already know that I read it in this one. So. <laughs> and my mom would send us metal coffee cans. She would put goodies in and send it. And they see boxes would get smashed and stuff. 
and she would send us uh, candy, cooks, she'd make cookies, whatever. Well, the cookies always were in powder when they got there from getting banged around. But she would send, I, think, I don't know if I was telling you, it's little Vienna sausages. She would send us those, and I told her to start sending nothing but them. So that's what she'd send, and we'd, I made sure we passed, everybody passed everything around. I always hid one for myself, though. You know, yeah. so. <laughs> your sausages. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was just, I wrote a lot because it gave me comfort. It gave made me feel home, and I was well-supported. I'm very lucky. Mail was clearly important to these people, and during wartime, it was delivered in some of the worst conditions imaginable. Mail call was major, major big time for everybody when... We would be in the rear when they would bring mail. Uh, they used to, when we were surrounded, they uh, they used to land planes on the airstrip, but they would get hit so bad, and some of them get blown up, they couldn't land anymore. So they would come in, and they would drop supplies with parachutes and s- slide them out the back, but they wouldn't do it with the mail because they was always afraid the mail would go outside and the enemy would get it and then they could use it for propaganda or be writing your parents or whatever, you know, so they would never do mail that way. They were always afraid it wouldn't get confiscated by the enemy, you know, which was probably a good thing. But every once in a while, a helicopter pilot would get crazy and deliver our mail. He'd take all the incoming rounds and, well, usually when they were coming in picking up wounded, because they did. I don't care how bad, I've seen them get, I never saw one got shot down, but I've seen them get hit bullets going through them and they'd still come in and get that guy or guys. A lot of times if they knew and they had mail, they'd bring it and throw it out at you because they knew they had to come anyway. They were relentless. They were lifesavers. Jack Barrett is 70 now, and you wouldn't know by looking at him. He's short, but well-built. He's got a wide smile and warm eyes. He loves Harley Davidson. So much so, he earned a nickname, Harley Jack. It's been his name for so long, some people only know him as Harley these days. He's a charming guy with a good sense of humor. During our interview, he pulled out a folded-up piece of paper. It was about three inches wide. When he unfolded it, it was about four feet long and trailed the ground. My mom was always saying, write longer letters. So I did. I wrote her. I wrote her a long letter. <laughs> how, okay, how did you get this? I don't know. It was something, and I... Just for a laugh, I thought I would write you a real long letter. <laughs> they thought it was funny. It doesn't. I don't know what all it says, but uh, that was my way of saying it. Hey. Despite his playful disposition, and despite his assurances to his mother the war wouldn't change him, he did bring the pain home. I, I never thought that I really had PTSD, although I always had a. Well, I had a temper before I went into service, but I had one when I came back. But uh, um, after going to the Vietnam Wall starting in, nine, in 2005 and being with guys all around me that did what I did, you tend not to share things like this much with people that... I, I, I guess the only way to say it is if you haven't been there and done it, you just really, you, you can understand, but you don't really know, you know, until you've done it. I found that that was a release for me, going to, to Washington, D.C. and being at the wall, and I've tried to go as often as I can, and I found that through my time after that, it's mellowed me, and it let a lot of hostilities out. Jack faced the same stigma that many men who fought in that war faced when they came home. 
men were expected to hold on to their feelings. Jack comes from a long line of servicemen. His father fought in the Second World War, his grandfather in the First, and his great-great-grandfather fought for the Union in the Civil War. That gave him some common ground with his dad when he came home, but not enough to really deal with what he found himself going through. But when I got home, yeah, my dad was proud. And so it, we bonded a little, a lot more until I got wild and crazy and started growing long hair in the 70s and started being a rebel and riding bikes, and he didn't like that at all. So I had a pretty tough time with him for a while. And then eventually I, I got married, uh, split up, and raised my two boys from ages two and four. Um, and then later on in life, he... Actually, on his mostly his deathbed, he called me in one day and told me what a great father I was. And uh, because of the two sons, because we're doing well, and I told him what I thought a great daddy was. We told each other we loved each other, and I never remembered that except maybe when I was little as a kid. Guys just didn't do that much, you know, but we did, and it was a good way to clear the air. And he knew it needed to be done. Um, I'm going to shift gears now from one father and son to another. Jack Fino is the commander of American Legion Post 16 in Gainesville. He was drafted into the Army during the Vietnam War, but he never saw Vietnamese soil. His father, Robert, served in Europe during World War II and then in Korea. He earned a bronze star and a purple heart during his time in combat. When I got drafted, I asked him, do I have to go? He goes, yeah. As you should. I says, okay. <laughs> it's the best experience. Best experience I ever had. Did did he tell you what to expect? No. No. Nope. Just told me he loved me and take care of myself and I says, Okay. And then it would uh I never, most people got to go home after their basic training or their advanced training. I didn't go home for almost a whole year because they just kept pushing me through and through and through to this other part. I, I was a uh, medic after I finished my basic training. I thought I'd get to go home. and uh, But they sent me to San Antonio, Texas for uh, my medical training. And then uh, I thought I'd go home after that, but they sent me to Fort Benning because I told them I wanted to be a paratrooper. So I get to Fort Benning, and they go, you're going to truck driving school for three weeks. I I didn't sign up for that, but (laughs) it it doesn't matter. Uh, So I went to truck driving school for three weeks, and I thought, well, maybe I can go home now. And by that time, they said, nope, got to go to jump school, learn how to jump out of airplanes and I did that for three weeks and I said finally I'm gonna go home I can go home now and they said nope gotta go to North Carolina to your unit and I then they said now you can get 30 days off because you're going to Vietnam and I said jeez and I just figured you know you go over there you die so I took my dirt 30-day leave, went home finally, and I was broke. I had to hitchhike back to North Carolina. In fact, I was AWOL for three days, absent without leave. Mm-hmm. 
And the sergeant told me if I can get back there by Sunday afternoon, they wouldn't file charges against me. I had no money, so I just... And I got there Sunday afternoon, and then they told me that I didn't have to go to Vietnam. And my unit was coming back. The 82nd Airborne Division was coming back from Vietnam. I said, Because the life expectancy of a medic in combat is five minutes. Because that's who they shoot. Mm-hmm. We used to wear a cross inside a white circle out in the field. Then they finally started getting smart because that was a target. And, uh, but yeah, I thought, but when they told me I didn't have to go, what a relief. I didn't have any money to go out and get drunk <laughs> <laughs> or anything. Jack was spared from his war, and Robert never talked much about his. He loved his family with a ferocity. He never had much money, but he managed to raise nine kids. Jack believes his father learned about love during his war. Do you think that that changed your dad at all? Or do you think it hurt him? I think it might have because that's what made him so loving because some of his friends didn't come back. And then to come back and have a family I think he appreciated it more and appreciated life and just a, a, a loving father. I mean, hugs were a dime a dozen at home because, you know, every, all of us, we were just brought up hugging and telling people and telling each other we love them. Even though we, you know, those brothers would fight every so often. But after a while, he would sit us down and tell us that we're wrong to fight, that we should be loving each other, tell us, give, you, give each other a hug. It was, it was nice. It was, it was nice. He was a good man. Jack's mom left him the letters her husband sent during his time in the service. Unlike Harley's, these were not sent during battle, but toward the end of the war, when home was close enough to taste. His affection for his young wife is obvious. Bad Bruckenall, Germany, September 23rd, 1945. Dearest darling, these few lines are just to say hello. Hope they find you in the very best of health. As for me, I am in the very best of health. Well, hon, tonight is the night Torres is coming for home, so I'm going to go say goodbye to him. I sure hate to see him go, as for I sure would like to come with them. I guess I'll be here for quite some time, as I haven't enough points. We are not getting any mail nowadays. I guess they are holding our mail back. I sure hope you write soon to my new address. I sure would like to hear from you. How is everything here at home? Are you working very hard nowadays? I sure hope not. As for now, I can send you some more money as I get $96 a month. I was sure happy that I made sergeant, for we will need all the money we can get. So when I get out of here, we can have something to start on. 
I'm having a hell of a time with this letter for I cannot type very good. Have you been up to your father's, your folks' place lately? How is your mom getting along? I hope every, everyone is fine. If you see them, say hello to them for me. How is the old man with your mother nowadays? Is he getting any better with her? I guess him and my stepdad are the same. No good for nothing. Save all the money you can, hon. I'm not telling you not to spend it, but you know we'll need some when I get out of here. Is Al still home on furlough? The lucky kid. Well, I am glad to see somebody getting furlough. As for I am not getting any. But as for the points, I sure got more than he has. What did you do for the 16th of September? Did you go to a dance or something? I guess they sure must have had a good one as, as for being in peace time. I wish I could have been here for that day. I sure would have celebrated for that day. I did have a good time for that day, but it would have been better if I was with you. I had plenty of drinking stuff, so Taurus and I had a swell time. We went to town, but those days are over now. He is going home. I'll close for now, as for I haven't much to say. Good night, my darling wife. Write soon, as for I am dying to hear from you. Loads of love and kisses to you, my love. I love you always. Yours with all my love. Robert Fino. Those who fight our wars often do so far from the places and people they protect. Through all the pain and the violence and the trauma, these letters are a scrap of safety, of home, and of love. In Find Out Florida this week, we're answering a question from a listener named Audrey Dickinson. She wanted to know what the latest is on a long-running legal feud over a Marion County cattle ranch's request for more water to expand its beef processing facility. You might have heard of it a few years ago when it was known as Adena Springs Ranch. The ranch owner later changed the name to Sleepy Creek. And that's where WUFT's Arne Holcomb picks up the story. The cattle ranch on Sleepy Creek land seeks a permit to take an additional 1.22 million gallons of groundwater per day from the Silver Springs and Silver River. The water increase will take place in years 2017 through 2023. Sleepy Creek land will use the additional water to produce more grass and hay to feed cattle. This will help convert more than 7,000 acres of their north tract into part of the cattle grazing processing operation, which covers about 30,000 acres in North Marion County. Petitioners are seeking to invalidate the emergency minimum flow rule for Silver Springs that was approved by the St. Johns River Water Management District Governing Board this April. The St. Johns River Keeper is one of the petitioners. Executive Director of St. Johns River Keeper Jimmy Orth says that overpumping from the Silver Springs and Silver River is not the only danger of granting the permit. Silver Springs and Silver River are also, also already impaired with nu- uh, too many nutrients. There's uh, the nitrate levels in Silver Springs and Silver River are um, exceed state standards. The St. John's River Water Management District supports the application for more water. Bureau Chief for Regulatory Services of the Water Management District Richard Berklew says that Sleepy Creek Land's request meets district criteria. In this case they're using a state-of-the-art um, beef processing facility. They demonstrated 
that their use is very nominal for that. They also demonstrated that the majority of their use, the, the pasture irrigation, since this is going to be a, a wholly grass-fed operation. The district staff recommended last year that from years 2024 through 2034, the rancher's water use dropped back to its current water allocation of 1.46 million gallons per day. Executive Director of Florida Defenders of the Environment Jim Gross says that current recovery strategies in Florida are not doing good, and this one will be no different. Issuing more permits is a surefire guarantee to cause significant harm to water bodies. So saying you're going to do a recovery strategy without saying how you're going to do it, it's just nonsense. Both sides will send post-hearing submissions by the deadline of August 16. After reviewing both submissions, the judge will issue a final order. There is no deadline for the final decision. Arne Holcomb, WUFT News. Thanks this week to Arne and to Luke for bringing us those stories. Keep your great questions coming to us at wuft.org slash findoutflorida. And join us next week in your iTunes or Google Play feeds. Find our daily newsletter at wuft.org slash the point. Have a great weekend.